This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Milner, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you uh, along with Austin. And uh, we're going through the book of Luke. And last week, uh, we're getting towards the end now. We're going to try to end at Easter. Um, we're going to go um, over the, the passage about the resurrection at Easter, fittingly. And so we're getting near the end. And last week, uh, we saw that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And if you know much about the story uh, of the Gospels, you know that um, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, um, that's, that's the last week of his life starting right there. It's called the Holy Week, and um, at the end of that week, on that Friday, so this will be a Sunday that he's entering Jerusalem, and then by that Friday, he's been crucified, and then that next Sunday, he rises from the dead. So that's where we are in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, last week, we looked at this thing that we call the Triumphal Entry, where on Palm Sunday, Jesus um, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and um, as the, um, the donkey rides down the streets, they throw... Uh, their cloaks in front of him and they wave palm branches and uh, they proclaim him not only the king but the messiah the king of the entire universe infinite in authority but also riding on a donkey which fulfills a prophecy from Zechariah made hundreds of years earlier where the prophet Zechariah said behold your king is coming and he's riding on a donkey so um, it shows that that this king is both uh, the messiah the infinitely powerful king of the universe the king of the whole world, but he's also riding on a donkey, so he's a humble king. And it's that paradox that you see throughout the gospel, that Jesus is both um, this very humble, meek, and lowly human being, but he's also the God Almighty, um, somehow both at the same time. And we see both of those aspects of him in this passage where uh, as he looks out over the the city of Jerusalem when he's coming down that hill, um, he begins to weep for the city which just shows his, his humanity. He was a human like we are, who is, um, who is prone to cry. And I don't know the last time you wept, but uh, that's what the Lord Jesus is doing here in this passage. He is weeping for his city, Jerusalem. But then as soon as he does that, he enters into the city and he cleanses the temple, which we're going to talk about, and it's, it's a sign of authority. It's a sign uh, that he owns the temple, that it's his temple, and um, that he has come to take it back. So both the weeping and then also the cleansing show his, his humanity and his humility, but also his uh, mighty authority and his divinity. So first of all, the weeping. We're going to look at the weeping and then at the cleansing. It says in verse 41, when he drew near and when he saw the city, he's coming down the Mount of Olives now. And at some point as he's coming down on that donkey, uh, he sees the city and he's on a horse, he's on a donkey. So he, um, he either stopped the donkey or he got off the donkey. And then I imagine, the, the word is so strong in Greek for weeping that I imagine that he just fell to his knees and he just 
he just put his head in his hands and he was probably just sobbing like his body was just convulsing with weeping as uh, he thought about his city he only weeps twice in the gospels and some of you might know that the other time that he weeps is for one of his best friends when Lazarus dies when Lazarus dies he same word he weeps for him he cries at other times in the gospels this is the only time that he weeps and then this point right here where it shows his deep humanity his, his affection where he sees his beloved Jerusalem who he actually loved even more than Lazarus because he's thinking about his bride the new Jerusalem he's thinking about how this city um, is a symbol of his, his own people, his bride, the new Jerusalem, and he thinks about her and he begins to weep. Um, not, not because she's dead, she's not dead yet, but she's going to be. He's very aware that his people, his beloved city Jerusalem, the city that he grew up going to as a child every Passover and loving to see, and whenever you would enter Jerusalem, you would see the temple, the golden temple, sparkling off in the distance. It would be like shining like a diamond in the night. And so uh, he sees her and he weeps, And then he says in verse 44, uh, you did not know the time of your visitation. And that's what he is, uh, he's so sad about, is they did not know that the Messiah was visiting them at that moment. They did not realize that. They were unaware that the time of visitation was right then. And again, I'll read Zechariah 9.9, where um, Zechariah prophesies the time of visitation. Uh, The prophet Zechariah says, your king is coming on a donkey. They should have known, your king is coming on donkey. And then Zechariah continues, no more war horses, no more chariots, no more swords, no more spears, no more bows, no more arrows. I offer peace to the nations. So the Messiah was coming and he was turning Israel from what was once a nation that would go to war. Now there's no more war for the church. The church does not fight ever again. No more guns for the church Not that people in the church can't fight as a military, but the church itself, as the church, cannot fight. Um, We do not take up arms as a church. That's not where we're supposed to be. The Messiah has come and visited his people, and he has said the church will not fight like that anymore. We're not going to fight against Rome. And see, that's what Jerusalem did not many years later. They forgot that um, the, 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 the Messiah was going to come uh, and, and as Isaiah 9 says, that he was going to break the rod of the oppressor. That he was going to burn the boot of the trampling warrior. And they had forgotten that that was the nature of the Messiah. And they had turned to this idea that the Messiah was going to be a great military leader. Who would, who would like build up this huge army and then fight for the country. And so um, they were thinking about, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus. And if you know much about the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, this guy, Judas Maccabeus, he came and he drove out uh, the Greek Empire, uh, the Seleucid Empire. He drove them out, and they were expecting another Judas Maccabeus. That had happened 200 years earlier. But 40 years after this event, um, the, the Jews would rebel against Rome, and they would try to do another Judas Maccabeus, and they would try to kick out the Romans And that's what Jesus saw coming. And so he says in verse 43, enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you. They will hem you in. They will tear you to the ground. You and your children, not one stone will be left upon another. He is seeing into the future what's going to happen because they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not know the Messiah had come. And they tried to fight. They tried to fight 
And uh, the historian Josephus, a Jewish historian who wrote this time, uh, he tells us that the, the Roman general Titus, who was a ruthless man, um, he besieged Jerusalem in 70 AD at Passover, and he intentionally did it at Passover because he knew that at Passover, Jerusalem would swell from 600,000 citizens to 2 million citizens because all the pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem from around the world. And so he knew that if he created a siege at that time, which meant that they surrounded the city, um, they would not let anyone out. And he knew that if he did it at Passover, that all their food and all their water would be depleted quickly, which happened. And the Jews finally let the Romans into Jerusalem. And at that point, the Romans massacred them. And there's even stories about um, just children being um, eaten by the Jews because it had gotten so bad, the, the siege. And, and, and Titus was ruthless. He, he killed a million Jews, even after they let him in. So that was the might of Rome, and that's what Jesus saw, and that's why he was weeping over the plight of his people, over the foolishness of his people who think that, um, that, they, they, think that they can uh, defeat the empire through, through politics. And there's a lot of us that still do, aren't there? Uh, a lot of us still put our hopes in politics and in power and the sword. And we think by, you know, whether it's social justice or God and country, you know, there are these two poles in our country, but both of them think that politics and whether it's legislation or whether it's bombing some country, we, we think that that's what the church is all about. The church gets behind politics and we, we make things happen. And uh, so you have these, this, the, the American Patriots Bible. I don't know if you realize there is such a thing, but there's an American Patriots Bible. And there's also the Poverty and Social Justice Bible, which in my opinion, are just they're sad to think about how you would reduce, you know, the, the Messiah's coming, the kingdom of God, to this one little view of America. Uh, the, the church is not a political action committee. It is a community that laments. That's what we do well. And that's what our country does not do well. The country does not lament when terrible things happen. Uh, the country wants to take action and pass legislation, and we got to do something about that. And the church should be mourning for the foolishness of the entire human race, including ourselves. We're not above that. We're not above that. So you got to ask yourself, as a follower of Christ, when was the last time that you actually wept like him? You know, if the spirit of Jesus is in us, then we should weep at times like he did. There should be times in our lives where um, we just fall to our knees and, and begin to convulse with sobs and tears. Not out of self-pity, but out of the fact that the world is as it is. Uh, that was the posture of the prophets. That was the posture of Jesus. He could have crushed Rome. He could have called down 12 legions of angels and just wiped out the entire Roman army. But that's not what he came for. He came and he wept for his people's sins. So that's the first point, that the king weeps. In that sense, he's passive, he's humble, he's lowly, he's very human. But then after he weeps, he comes into the, he goes right into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple as a sign of enormous authority. And it shows that he is, uh, he is active, he's exalted. He could have protected the temple from destruction, but instead he cleanses the temple from idolatry. So second point, uh, he cleans the temple. Verse 45 it says that uh, as soon as he came into Jerusalem, he made a beeline for the temple. And it wasn't like, oh, there's the temple. Let's go look at the temple. It, he made it. This was the first prophetic act of authority with Jesus when he came into his city. And it says he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold 
He passes through the east gate of Jerusalem. He comes down the Mount of Olives. He goes right to the temple. And he acts like he owns the place. He says in verse 46, My house shall be called the house of prayer. It's amazing these Jewish people would have followed a man who called the temple his house as a human being. It's my house. I own that place. He calls himself the temple. I mean, the statements he made were astonishing. He could not have been a a good moral teacher. That's not possible. He made people too angry for that. He says, my house shall be called the house of prayer in verse 46. And then the gospel of John tells us more. It tells us that he got angry. It uses the word anger. So he wept first, but now he's angry. And not only is he angry, he takes, I don't even know how you do this, but he takes, it says, a whip of cords. So I imagine he found a bunch of cords. He tied them together. Um, I don't know how you do that, but he found out, I don't know how long it was, but imagine him wielding this weapon now. I just said that the church can't use the sword, but at this point he's using this whip and he he is hitting things violently. This is the only time he ever got violent. Uh, It says that in verse 45, he drove out, the word is drove out, all those who sold, who were selling things in the temple. And the the, the Gospel of John says in in John 2.14, he drove out those who were selling oxen. So in the temple, there were people selling these big oxen that then the worshiper would come and sacrifice. Uh, he, He drove out those who were selling sheep. Imagine the bleeding of the sheep in the temple. He drove out those who sold pigeons. He, he picked up the table of the money changers. I don't know how big these things were, but think about that table right there. Big wooden table. He picked it up and just flipped it over, it says. He, he overturned the table of the money changer and he said, Take these th- get these things out of here. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade, a house of commerce. My uh, sister-in-law, who is, uh, who is no longer a Christian, uh, she's an atheist, uh, but she has a, a real heart for social justice. And, um, and she said the one, the one passage in the Bible that I, that I loved the most when I was a Christian and I still respect it so much is the cleansing of the temple. Because he did not mess around with greed and exploitation. This is what he did when, that, when he saw that in the temple. Because uh, the, the money changers have taken the most sacred space on earth and they have turned it into the Haynes Mall. Nothing wrong with the Haynes Mall, but you don't want to take that stuff into the church. I mean, imagine a bunch of little shops, you know, lining the church where you're selling stuff. And not only are you selling stuff, but you're selling things to people who are, who are going to worship. And you're price gouging them. So that the temple, I mean, I thought about the Grand Canyon if you like set up a big tourist trap, like Myrtle Beach or Gatlinburg around the Grand Canyon. That's... That's what they were profaning, this beautiful, sacred space. The temple was the micro-Eden. That's what one commentary said. The Bible Project, if you know the Bible Project, they called it the micro-Eden. It's a miniature version of Eden, the Garden of Eden. And so there were images of leaves in the temple. There were images of flowers and plants. Um, The temple had gold and jewels, and there were angels in there, pictures of angels, just like, um, and statues of angels. Just like in Eden, there were gold and there were jewels and there were angels. So... So entering into the temple was the worshiper's invitation to come back, to get back into the garden. If you know that song by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, we've got to get back into the garden. That's what the temple was. You were supposed to get back into the garden and walk with God in the cool of the day, where it's filled with beauty and filled with grace and forgiveness. And the worshiper would come and they would offer their sacrifice and God would forgive them. 
There was singing going on. It was beautiful. It was made of gold. And this was not just for the, the Jewish people. This was for the whole world. This was for Gentiles to come in. There was a whole place called the Court of the Gentiles that was surrounding the temple, and the Gentiles could come there, and they could worship there. All people on earth could come and worship God in the temple. It was his invitation to the Garden of Eden. But it was being used by these people, by these merchants, to satisfy their greed. To satisfy their greed. Verse 46, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people, for all the Gentiles, but you, you have made it into a den of robbers. A den of robbers. That was the worst part. They set up these kiosks where they were selling this stuff right there in the court of the Gentiles. So it was in the Gentiles' court that they couldn't even hear anything because there was so much bleeding going on and so many coins being exchanged. Right there where the Gentiles were supposed to be invited to worship is where they were doing this stuff. And they were, they were price gouging the Gentiles. So they were selling the pigeons and the sheep at exorbitant prices because that was the only place you could get them. And it made Jesus angry. And he took a whip of cords. Because the most sacred space in the Jewish imagination had become profane. I thought about the riot in the Capitol. And the way that the Capitol building, which is a symbol of democracy and freedom, has become this thing that is profaned by those rioters and what they did. And I think it's a good image of what Jesus felt when he saw his temple being used as a den of robbers. And by the way, this still happens in the church. God's people still do this. Uh, the church is used as a place of commerce. And you have celebrity pastors, and you have people promoting their books, and you have famous Christian bands that come, and very often the church becomes an industry that's highly commercialized, and there's a lot of money at stake. I mean, just move to Nashville and look at what's going on with Christian music and Christian publishing. There's a lot of money at stake within the church. And some of that's legitimate, but at some point it gets pretty bad. And we look at people like Carl Lentz and Bill Hybels and Robbie Zacharias, and we see these people and many, many more who have been corrupted by money, by greed. And it happens all the time. It happens, when the church gets involved with greed, um, then it gets very, very ugly. And that's what Jesus is angry about, the, the idolatry that is being brought into the church. But it doesn't have to be money. Um, it's probably not money for you. It's not money for me. That's not what I idolize. That's not the idol I bring into the church. For me, it's more like the dream of an ideal community where you find friends, where you find like-minded people, conflict-free uh, groups of people coming together, and uh, it's the, the place you raise your kids. And that's what the church becomes. It's this nice little friendship, uh, this little group of friends, uh, this community where we all kind of agree on things and we enjoy each other and we're of the same demographic uh, that, is, that is another idol that we so often bring into the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls, calls those wish dreams. We bring these wish dreams into the church. Or we, we find the church to be a place where we find healing. And so it becomes very therapeutic, and it's all about um, you know, being healed and, having a, and like having a really good life now, where you express your emotions, you think these uh, profound thoughts. Uh, that's not what the church is. Uh, the church is like the temple. It's like uh, the invitation back to the garden to walk with God in the cool of the day. And Jesus cleanses the church because he wants so much more for us than just friendship or just healing or certainly more than money. And so pulling back to sum up, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. 
and then he cleanses the temple, which is the center of Jerusalem. His beloved city, his beloved people. In Revelation 21, 2, it says, the new Jerusalem came down from heaven like a bride dressed for her husband. The Jerusalem was his beloved bride. He wept for her. And then, and then in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.15, um, Paul says, we are the temple. That, that, that God's people are his temple. Do you not know that you're God's temple, Paul says. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not realize you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And then in 1 Peter 2.5, Peter says, we are living stones built into the Spirit's temple. So we are now the new temple. And we are a foretaste of the new Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem would betray him and would crucify him. But he loved her even as she did those things. And it says in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you together as a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not, you would not let me comfort you. You would not let me visit you and heal you. And so when he was weeping, he was not weeping for himself, he was weeping for them. And Titus, the general Titus, would pulverize the temple. But Jesus promised that when Titus did that, he would raise the temple back up. John 2.19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. So the gospel is that we are the temple, we are the bride, that he wept for, that he died for, that he rose to be. And we are a community centered around this table that's behind some of you and in front of some of you and it is that table that uh, we gather uh, to be the temple to be the bride it, draw, it draws us together it makes us one and in that table we we take all of our sin and we give it to him and we take all of his righteousness and we take it for ourselves it's the great exchange we get all of his righteousness he gets all of our sin that's what's going on this table and so if you're someone um, who's not sure whether to partake right now or not, I used to come to church when I was an atheist, and I never knew what to do when the Lord's Supper happened. So let me just say, there's no pressure to partake. If you're not comfortable doing that, feel no pressure to partake at all. Um, but also know that if you want Jesus, and if you want this God-man who weeps and who cleanses, if, that, if he is attractive to you, if you want him to save you, then you are welcome to this table. This is not a table for good people. It's a table for people who are beggars. And we're holding out our hands and saying, I need your grace, Lord. When we come up there, we hold out our hands. and we let, He puts the bread in our hands. And then he puts the cup in our mouths. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And so on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so whenever we eat the bread, whenever we drink the cup, we proclaim his death.